Hi, folks. Welcome back to Vox Tablet. I'm your host, Sarah Ivry. Today, back to school and school politics. It's September. Kids around the country are settling into classrooms for a new year, unaware of the fights over curriculum, teacher evaluations, school funding, and other hot-button topics taking place all around them. Just north of New York City, in the district of East Ramapo in Rockland County, one such battle has been brewing for nearly a decade, and it's a battle that's brought racial and ethnic tensions to the surface. In 2005, the school board in East Ramapo underwent a change when Hasidic Jews living in the area voted enough Orthodox Jews into office to make them a majority on the board. Most of the kids in the public schools that the board oversaw came from African-American, Caribbean, and Latin American homes. The children of the Jewish community in town went, by and large, to private schools, partly subsidized by the district. Tempers flared, so much so that members of the community filed a lawsuit against the school board in 2012. Did Hasidic Jews in East Ramapo stack the school board so that they could siphon money from public schools at the expense of poor, mostly non-white kids? That's what Batya Unger-Sargon wanted to find out. This past spring and summer, Batya headed up to East Ramapo again and again and again, and what she found surprised her. She wrote about East Ramapo for Tablet Magazine. You can read her article on her site now. And I'm very pleased to say Batya is joining us today on the podcast to talk about what her reporting revealed. Batya Unger-Sargon, welcome to Vox Tablet. Thank you so much for having me. It's a humongous honor. (laughs) Batya, the conflict between the East Ramapo School Board and the families of public school students in the area has gotten a lot of coverage in the press. How has the story uh, been told in the mainstream media? The impression that you get from reading the accounts that existed before I sort of started doing my research was that this school board had taken over, and this is language that's used again and again, taken over the school board and that they were using their power in order to, the word siphon is used, or uh, in order to sort of take money from this poorer, disadvantaged population very much in need in order to help pay for their private school education, and in particular, the private school education of their special needs children. So that sort of radical takeover by this religious orthodox it's often called Hasidic, but it's not only made up of Hasidim community, um, by voting in this school board and con- assuming power of the purse strings. Well, what made you think that they were getting it wrong? What set off red flags for you? Um, that's a really good question. I I have this sort of unconscious attraction to stories where it seems like there's a side that's not being told. To me, that's sort of my feminism coming out in a way. I always feel that What's the other side saying? And I had been to a press conference that was organized by a whole group of Orthodox leaders in the community and a bunch of other leaders in the community who are not Orthodox, who were, you know, there was a, a Haitian reverend there and um, uh, and also uh, one of the leaders of the Latino community. And, you know, they were trying to change the formula. And the formula is the way that the state decides how much money each district should get. And they sort of were trying to 
tell the people who had attended the conference that, you know, it's not exactly that narrative that, you know, the board is stealing money from this community is not exactly accurate, that actually, you know, the state is really to blame or, you know, and I wasn't sure if that was true. I wasn't sure if, you know, oh, is there really another culprit or if just the way that this narrative was getting constructed and getting told was actually creating a power dynamic that wasn't even necessarily true. Well, let me ask you, how did you approach the story? What did you think you needed to do to get it right? Um, I really wanted to see the budgets. <laughs> I really wanted to see the data. Um, I also really wanted to spend a lot of time in the community. I wanted to speak to members of both sides of the community. You know, often it's very hard to get um, Hasidic women, for example, to speak to journalists. And I think that's why a lot of the um, articles do not quote them. But it's a lot easier in East Ramapo to get people from to get public school parents to speak to journalists. And so I and, and, and they're very sympathetic people, you know, they want a great education for their children, which they're not getting. And, you know, my sense was that there were a lot of sympathetic people here, there were a lot of people who really um, were trying to do the right thing. And somehow, a narrative had been created that was um, helping to create and sustain this tension in this community um, that wasn't necessarily the actual, you know, the correct version of what was going on. Let's talk a little bit about East Ramapo. Who lives there? What's it like economically? What's the town like? What's the area like? It's a really fascinating town. Um, you have this county, uh, Rockland County, and in it, there are about eight different school districts. So East Ramapo School District is the one right in the middle. Now, the thing to know about Rockland County is that all of the surrounding school districts are a majority white, upper middle class. The median age is, you know, the same as the median age or much higher than the median age in the rest of the United States. And then you look at East Ramapo, which has Spring Valley and Muncie. Um, now, Spring Valley is a town that has, it's a village that has um, a lot of immigrants in it. And so that brings the median age down about 10 years from what it is across the rest of the United States. It brings the income down. And then you go to Muncie, which is a majority Orthodox Jews, and that brings the median age down another 10 uh, years. And the in median income also down. So the median income in Muncie is about $34,000 a year, whereas the median income in like Airmont, which is a, one of these white towns in uh, Rockland County, is about $94,000 a year. In fact, in one of the articles that you quote in your story, you say that Rockland County, parts of Rockland County have been described as Cheever-esque, which connotes a kind of very old world, genteel, waspy, gin and tonic kind of society. And in fact, <laughs> they took when they so when they realized in the 80s and the 90s that the Orthodox Jews from Brooklyn were moving north, they took measures to maintain this this kind of quality, this Cheever-esque quality by incorporating um, which means that they actually created town limits and town regulations that made it impossible for Hasidim to move in. For example, they made it impossible to build multiple family dwellings, which the Hasidim need because they live in communities because they need to go to shul. And so you have to build a community. And I, to me, that was a sort of like, wait a minute moment. Wouldn't a kind of legal incorporation that makes it impossible for Hasidic Jews to live somewhere be something that would set off alarm bells? I mean, it did for me. And I understand that for a lot of people, this was an aesthetic decision. You know, they want to look out their window and see trees and see greenery, and they don't want to look out their window and see, you know, Hasidim walking down the street to shul. But, you know, 
I think people might want to stop and think about what that says about an area. So maybe you can just sort of lay it out for us. What is the thrust of the tension here? What does the community accuse the board of doing? Okay. Um, the, the reason they're upset is because a huge amount of cuts took place within the district um, about 2009-2010. They cut athletics. They cut drama clubs. They cut art. They cut music. They cut a lot of counselors. They cut a lot of teachers. Um, and so the public school community got very upset by this. Um, and the, the, they accused them also, in addition to making these cuts, they accused them of underappraising public school buildings. So underappraising. Underappraising to sell them to yeshivas for cheap. They accused them of buying religious books with taxpayer money, which they're not allowed to. And they accused them of using public funds to pay for a segregated private education. Now, the thing is, the ironic thing is that the state actually mandates that the district pay for special education for children who have special needs. Um, And so a lot of the tension comes from the process whereby that gets decided. The board claims that it's following the law, and then the lawsuit claims that it's not. But some of these allegations are, in fact, true, are they not? They absolutely are, yes. Um, An appraiser actually was was, uh, convicted of a felony for underappraising a school, um, and about 80 textbooks out of many thousands were actually religious books that were paid for with public school funds. And just so that we all understand exactly, the stipulation is that if you have a special needs child who can't go to school in the district and has to go out of district to either a public school out of district or a private school out of district where they can seek adequate education, the state the state has to pay for that. Well, not exactly. The state mandates that the district provides certain things for every child. So for example, uh, transportation. Even if a child decides they want to go to school in New Jersey and they live in East Ramapo, the East Ramapo school district has to pay for that. Um, the the school district has to pay for textbooks. Even for yeshivas, they have to pay for textbooks as long as they're compliant with a certain amount of regulations. Um, they also have to pay for special education. Every child who has special needs, uh, the state has determined that the district must pay for them for them to have um, an education. Now, the question is how they're determined, how it's determined which education they should be getting. So the way that it's set up is that um, the district suggests an education, a place to send the child to school. Um, Sometimes it's a private school. Sometimes it's a public school. Sometimes it's an out-of-district school, but mostly it's a public school. The parent can then appeal that decision, and there's a litigation process. Now, the board, instead of going into litigation, has decided that it's cheaper to simply allow the child to go where the parent wants. So the question is, how legal is that? And that's where all the tension lies. I see. Well, why are these parents, these Jewish parents, who are parents of children with disabilities and special needs, opting to send their kids elsewhere for schooling? Um, I think it probably matter- it differs from parent to parent. Also, it you know bears mentioning a lot of them do send their children to the public schools when they get rejected from the board. Um, I think there's this one school that a lot of them like um, in Curious Joel. It's actually a public school, but it's out of district. Um, it costs the same as the cheapest public school available in the district. Um, and I, it, it's equipped better than any of the schools in the district, which is actually one of the legal means that a parent can contest the placement of their child. I think also, um, 
you know, there's a lot of things at stake for them. A lot of their philosophy hangs on keeping their children um, apart, whether it's for the simple fact that their children eat different kinds of food. And, you know, I mean, we've all been in school. and We are all trading, you know. I mean, it's, it's, it's part of their religion to not have shared um, food with other children who are not Orthodox. So they, I think that there are religious reasons that they want their children to go to separate schools. Um, there are also just the, you know, the logistical reasons, and then the op- the offerings at these schools are a little bit better. Um, it, you know, in a way, yes, they're right. Like public funds should not be applied to any segregating principle. But these aren't. This is not exactly segregation. I mean, I think that it bears questioning. You know, this is it's a legal question right now whether when the law said that every child deserve every special needs child deserves a free and appropriate education, who gets to determine what appropriate is. And more and more in um, district courts and um, appellate courts, they're determining that the parents actually get to decide that and not a committee. Just to be clear, when the East Ramapo School District suffered this huge budget cut in 2009, 2010, it was not unique. I mean, you looked at numbers for many districts and across the board, there were severe cuts. Yeah, there were severe cuts and severe measures taken. And also a lot of the school districts are now doing what East Ramapo did in 2005 in order to not make the cuts that then they got a lot of flack for in 2009, for example, dipping into the reserves. So when East Ramapo realized that they were going to have this big budget cut and this big fallout, they started reaching, they had reserves and they spent all the reserves in order to keep the programming. And now you have these other towns that are reaching into, I think um, Orange Town had to spend money from its reserves. And then you have, um, yeah, all of the districts faced. But the problem is because East Ramapo is getting more state aid because it's so much poorer than the other districts, they also lost a lot more. And so proportionately, it was a much bigger hit. So then the grievance that the uh, non-white community there has against the Jews uh, how does one broach that or, or soften it or, or make the, or make it go away? I mean, how does a sort of sense of community and uh, we're all in this together get cultivated? Um, it's not it's not Jews. There are a lot of Jews, actually, who are the, some of the biggest supporters of the public school community are actually Jews. It's really just Orthodox Jews. Um, I, I, I think that's a really good question. Um, there's one program um, that the superintendent has started now where they have um, a Yiddish-speaking class for special needs children within uh, one of the public school buildings. Um, and those there you have teachers who are Hasidic interacting with teachers who are not Hasidic on a regular basis. And the principal is telling me how wonderful it's been and how you know nobody in that school anymore is part of the problem anymore or sees things in this way. You know, you go out into the recess and the children are playing with this, these special needs children. It's really lovely. But the people bringing the lawsuit consider this to be still segregated because they're not eating with the public school children, which is kind of ironic because those children don't eat. They have backpacks with their food in it that feeds into feeding tubes. I mean, it's just, it's so it's a kind of, when you walk into this classroom and you see these children and you just think, you know, these children aren't being segregated. They're trying so hard to integrate them into this school in a way that the parents have actually gotten really on board with. And yet the advocates for the public school community still find this to, you know, this sort of integrated and lovely program to be problematic. So I don't really know what the... (laughs) what the solution is. So it seems like in some ways there's this undercurrent, though, that it's like a the Sioux is fueled by a kind of anti-Orthodox sentiment or anti-Semitism. Even. Um, 
I can tell you I've definitely met people in the public school community who are not anti-Semites and who are not anti-Hasidic. Um, they feel incredibly frustrated and incredibly disempowered um, by the fact that their children's programming has been cut. Um, I think they're, the Orthodox Jews were an easy culprit. I mean, it does... You can imagine what it looks like when you go to one of these school meetings and there's this sort of they make up a majority of the school board. And then but in a way, the media really has sort of fueled this instead of instead of saying the problem is that the state stopped giving us took forty five million dollars from us from 2009 to 2013. The media said the Jews took it or the Orthodox Jews took it. And so in that sense, I think it really did fuel this sort of. um the feeling that they've been hard done by by someone who's right there, who they may already have antipathy towards for other reasons. In the piece, you talk to a lot of people, a lot of parents. You go to cafes, you go to the town library, to supermarkets. What did you find most interesting or maybe surprising about the conversations you had in those places? Um, definitely walking around the supermarket, talking to Hasidic women who told me, oh, I don't understand anything about the school district, but I vote on all of the budgets. Um, it was fascinating. Um, it's a fascinating look into this, um, this way that this community has managed to use democratic means in order to support itself, which I just thought was incredibly fascinating. Um, but without knowing even what she's supporting, just having been told, vote this way. But also, they are supporting their community. They're supporting the parents of children with special needs. So you have these board members who go up to go to these board meetings and they sit there in front of this furious public who yell at them and have to face this. And they're not getting paid to do it. They're doing it in order to help the parents of special needs children in their community. Um, it's very, it's very interesting, very fascinating. Um, I also found it very interesting how all of the people supporting the, with the exception of a few, <laughs> supporting the public school community seemed like really good people. Like they seemed to really care about the children. They felt very hard done by, they felt that some very great injustice was being perpetrated by um, a group who had sort of seized power. And so the, the competing narratives I thought were um, really fascinating. In reading this piece, I felt a little bit as a reader that you had a horse in this race. Uh, what I mean is that somehow you were a little bit taking it upon yourself to defend uh, the Jews, the ultra-Orthodox Jews. In, in other pieces that you've written about the community, you've been a lot more critical, uh, for instance, around issues of divorce and women's rights. I wonder why do you think you found yourself kind of on the side of the Hasidim in this case? <laughs> That's a really great question. I would say I found myself on the side of truth, but... Uh... <laughs> Um, I think I don't side with, um, I, I don't, in each story I tell, I try to find what the best that I can tell to be the truth of the story. And sometimes the Hasidim are on that side and sometimes they're not. <laughs> <laughs> Batya Unger Sargon, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much, Sarah. Batya Unger Sargon is a former staff writer for Tablet Magazine. She's got a great profile of the fight over the school board in East Ramapo. 
New York up on Tablet Magazine right now. Be sure to read it and be sure to share it with other people and be sure to comment. We'd love to know your thoughts on it. Vox Tablet is a weekly podcast, in case you didn't know that, and we would love for you to subscribe to it on iTunes or any other podcast browser. That way you will never miss a single episode. The podcast is produced by Julie Subrin. I'm your host, Sarah Ivry. We thank you so much for being with us. 